on the bunker today I have Sean. I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name because I can't. Um, he's a stand-up comedian, a rapper, teacher, um, and then he teaches a football that I can't pronounce either, Gaelic football, which is an Irish um, old-school football. Uh, he does charity stuff. He's kind of an NGO. He, he, he denies it himself. He's from New Jersey and then lived in the Bronx. Um, talked about his childhoods, the Irish roots, and how they are embraced. Uh, and then, you know, that guy, he has moved to Mexico. He's lived in Barcelona and lives now here in Prague in the Czech Republic. Um, yeah, he's teaching, doing stand-up comedy. We talked about that, uh, his music. And, uh, yeah, the teacher's view on COVID and lockdowns and what impact it has on kids and um, and teachers as well. So, uh, yeah, it was a good talk. A little bit about the sponsors, the Old Bar Prague, that's old meals and skier, healthy stuff on the go, or you can get it delivered home, open on the weekday from 8.30 to 3 o'clock, uh, except Fridays to 1.30, and Saturday mornings 8.30 to 1.30. Um, check it out, great place. Uh, and then Alpha Jobs, where you find your dream job. Um, no more shitty jobs. Just set up a job watch on Alfred and you get jobs sent your way. You don't have to waste time looking for them. Alfred.cz, available in English, Czech and Slovak. Enjoy the show, guys. Thanks. Listen here, little patty, let me teach you a lesson. It might not change your world for a second to help the common regression, but it'll do you respect. Listen here, little patty, let me teach you a lesson. Listen here, little patty, let me teach you a lesson. It might not change your world for a second to help the common regression, but it'll do you respect. Listen here, little patty, let me teach you a lesson. On the bunker, we have Sean Riordan. How was that? That's uh, it's not perfectly correct. It's not the worst I've heard. Riordan. 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 There it is. Um, Sean, I'm, I'm just going to call you Sean. I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid the, the complicated part. I'm a simple man. And uh, I found Sean as a stand-up comedian in a stand-up club in Prague. And uh, was a little bit curious. Um, we had some beers and drinks together. Yeah, after uh, the show, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and then I kind of gradually found out that there is a, a lot of things about you. You're kind of a mixed bag. You're a teacher, you're a rapper, you're a stand-up comedian. You, mm-hmm. you train Gaelic, is that right? Gaelic football. Gaelic yeah. football, which mm-hmm. is an ancient Irish Yeah, Irish football. traditional sport. Yeah, and you... Do charity work as well, or kind of, I mean, you're I like mean, an I NGO have, in a way. I, I have. I'm, not, I'm definitely not like an NGO. I've done charity intermittently throughout my yeah. life, but I can't say that I've you know done something uh, charitable as like a large-scale part of my life. If someone puts a gun on your head and asks you, what are you? What's the answer? What am I, like... Ethnically or just so, just like no, nah, I mean this identity. I, yeah, what's well, your identity? Yeah, I am an Irish American teacher from New Jersey. Okay, I think would be the kind of summative of all, all the most most important parts. Married to a Mexican woman. There we go. I'm an Irish. To make American, it a little bit more Irish American teacher from New Jersey, married to a Mexican woman. That sums f- me up right there. I'm gonna feel sorry for your kids when they come. Yeah, right. Gonna, <laughs> we're Irish American Mexican kids that are uh, so kids of teachers that Mexico. are from New Jersey or maybe Philadelphia or maybe Prague. Who knows? Um, but uh, we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day, and uh, just out of curiosity, because you're having a beer in a green can, 
Uh, not straight out of a can. We're we're civilized here, but um, mm-hmm. uh, why is St. Patrick's Day so big? I mean, well, St. Patrick's Day is just like any other saint day in its origin. It's like it's a, a holy day in the Catholic Church, mm. um, the way you'd have like on a St. Stephen's Day in Hungary or something like that. But St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland, so he was you know kind of responsible for bringing Catholicism to Ireland. Whether you see that as good or bad in the present is uh, is irrelevant in the matter. Mm-hmm. But it was a, just a traditional holiday in in that respect. What kind of made it something different, I think, is just the level of immigration or emigration of Irish people mm. because there's so many diaspora communities all over the place, St. Patrick's Day started to take on something aside from just the religious aspect that it becomes a celebration of Irish heritage. So even today, it's kind of a bigger deal in cities like Boston or New York or Chicago Mm. than it is in Ireland. I mean, it's a national day, Mm. but they're not dying the river green and doing all this kind of stuff. stuff, Yeah, yeah, because that's what Irish Americans are doing to try to hold on to their heritage, a heritage that gets further away with every generation, whereas people in Ireland are Irish no matter how much, no matter what their relationship to their identity is, they're just Irish. Mm. So I think that's what St. Patrick's Day has become. It's like a, a celebration of how far the Irish have come. and Like a connection to the roots in some mm-hmm. sense. Exactly. Because I've actually, I've been in Boston on St. Patrick's Day. It was that was crazy. I, mm. I had no fucking clue what it was. I've been in New York as well. Mm. And it was the same thing, and um, and even in Copenhagen when I lived in Copenhagen, it was it, it was a big thing there. You know, all the Irish bars and everything. Sure. You know? um, I, I I I always wondered who this Patrick guy was. You know, if he was like. A, I don't he's know, like a, a master brewer or something, you know, like yeah. he's a French slave. Uh-huh. Or, or, uh, he was either born in France or Wales, I believe. What would now be France was captured as a slave, brought to Ireland, eventually became got, won his freedom or escaped. It's uh, the, it's escaping me, mm-hmm. and then eventually he returned to Ireland to bring them all into the faith. Oh, that's interesting. That's the story. Yeah, that's old Pat. Cheers. Cheers, brother. Slancha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but where did it all start for you? I mean, you, you said you're from New Jersey, so take me back there a little bit. Yeah, man. Uh, so I'm from central New Jersey. Uh, mm. I was born in a city called New Brunswick, uh, raised about 20 minutes away from it in a town called Rocky Hill. Mm. Uh, really small. like So it's a very small town, like 400 people small, but then it's part of a larger township like a conglomeration of smaller towns that all go to schools together Mm. so i grew up in a 450 person village inside of a 20,000 person town Mm. in jersey which is you know the best way to characterize new jersey is that it's one of the most diverse states in the united states it's the most densely populated so it tends to have a more you know urban character throughout a lot of the the state and you're pretty much guaranteed to have a pretty diverse friend group just by diverse by ethnicity yeah yeah uh yeah but pretty much you know almost anywhere you're from in new jersey that's just going to be your reality from kindergarten Uh which is a really cool and not not unique to new jersey but it definitely uh new jersey would be much more diverse in that sense than most places in the u.s and and for for me new jersey kind of i mean it was a shitty basketball team Mm-hmm. Um, and I, they were not super good in, in American football either, right? Well, that, the, the, the disrespect. This is the thing about New Jersey. We, get, we are <laughs> constantly getting disrespected by New York. And meanwhile, all these uh, New York assholes, you know, they move out to New Jersey to raise their families. And I by that, I do not include my mom in that. My mom is oh. from the Bronx and moved to New Jersey. Not you, mom. You are awesome. 
but a lot of New York people that talk trash about New Jersey then move there. But the thing is, you got the New York Giants and the New York Jets, American mm. football teams, football mm. teams. They're both in New. They play in New Jersey. The stadium is like twenty-five miles into New Jersey. Yeah, like it. The disrespect. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're just named wrong. Yeah, they're the New Jersey Jets and the New Jersey Giants. And the other thing I know about uh, New Jersey, I mean, I've been there. I I I went to New Jersey um, to a place called Woodbury Commons, which was a horrible experience. That's a random, random place to go in yeah. New Jersey. And uh, a uh, mall instead of mall. Yeah. So it's <laughs> a like mall a discount, in South discount. Jersey. Yeah, the yeah, outlets mall. down in Woodbury. Yeah. Yeah, it was horrible. I went on a bus from Manhattan. Um, from Manhattan down to Woodbury. Yeah. Oh my God. Never do it again. Um, And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, no matter how cheap the stuff is there. Uh, but it's The Sopranos. Mm -hmm. That's Jersey. That's a part of it. But is that like in in is that in any way like a fair reflection of New Jersey somehow? I mean, yeah, like, yeah? yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not def like definitive of New Jersey. That's not mm. the main. You know, it's not like the mafia is ever present in your life as a New Jerseyan. Mm. Um, almost nowhere would that be the case now. But even when it was the case at its peak, that's only a minority of places where they had that kind of influence. Uh, influence. But but it's a part of it. I mean, you know, I definitely had, you know, families at my high school that, you know, you kind of knew or assumed that their, you know, father was involved in some kind of way. And the closer you get to New York, the more that became a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, my father's side of the family's from a, a city where they would have had a lot of influence for him growing up. Uh, but... So it's a part of the New Jersey story and not only just the Sopranos and like the criminal element, but like that very kind of the urban environment that a lot of the Sopranos takes place in and the mm -hmm. attitude mm -hmm. of New Jersey people, you know, a lot of quick talking yeah. and, you know, kind of like tell you to go fuck yourself really quickly. Like that's a part of who New Jersey's who New Jerseyans are, what New Jersey is mm -hmm. that kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, go fuck yourself. Kind of, mm -hmm. You know, you don't like us. Well, that's, you know, that's fine. And, and that's a part of everybody's feeling. And and growing up there, I mean, how what, what was it? Um, um, was it a big family you're from? You you have? Uh, I mean, relatively, uh, I guess. Like, uh, I got, well, I think I have 13 first cousins. Mm. Um, so, I, like, me and my cousins and my sister represent the second generation born in the United States. Mm. So, like, the kid numbers dropped off really mm -hmm. quick. You know, whereas my parents are one of seven and one of five, my grandparents are all double digits, mm. you know? So like second generation, we're like, all right, let's slow it down. You know, mm -hmm. we're like, we don't have farmland that, you know, needs people to work it anymore. Yeah. Um, so I've got decently big family, but but close, mm. but very close knit. And what did your parents do? Uh, both in education. Okay. Uh, my mother was a special education teacher, uh, then moved into being what's uh, called a learning consultant. Mm. Um, so basically kind of a, Go between for teachers and kids with disabilities, making sure the kids are getting all of the services that they need according to the law, helping teachers come up with strategies to better uh, teach the kids or help them deal with socio-emotional problems, whatever the case may be. Mm. Um, so she did that for about 40, 50 years. She now works at a children's hospital uh, in the brain injury wing, doing a similar thing, coordinating between the hospital and school districts. Uh -huh. uh, and my father was a health and PE teacher and basketball and track and field coach. Coach okay. for about 40 years uh, he passed like eight years ago but uh -huh. both in education so so and and the irish roots i mean um it's interesting like you know i mean obviously 
the, most of us know America mainly from film or or you know from mm-hmm. from I don't know f- film and, and pop culture or something like that. But it 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 looks a little bit from the outside like that that you have those ethnic groups like the Irish, uh, you have the Italians, mm-hmm. and then you have some of the Latin or South American ones. A lot, yeah. That are, but th- their voice is very very strong somehow or or they're very visible somehow whereas then you take the polish and the german mm-hmm. and you don't you you don't you don't see, but there's a bunch of them there you know and 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 you but you don't see them in the same way at least not mm-hmm. in those cities on the on the east coast you know sure. like new york boston and, and and jersey and 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 yeah down to philadelphia and that mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. Why is the Irish? I mean, why, was that and in your family was that something that you guys embraced somehow? Sure. I mean, well, in general, like why you would see like the the Irish and the Italians have a more prevalent role in terms of immigrant communities in the U.S. is that there's been continuing kind of replenishment of the those communities mm. of recently arriving immigrants, and that hasn't been the case for Germans in a very very long time. Mm. Whereas you know Ireland's economy just became you know solvent and productive 20-something years ago. And even then, there's peaks and valleys, and, you know, that sometimes a lot of that wealth stays in Dublin and and in the far reaches of the Northwest and stuff. There's still no opportunity. So there's always been Irish people still going Mm. and keeping those communities kind of alive, Mm. and that's the same for Latin American groups. I mean, if if no Mexican comes to the United States for 75 years, there's not going to be a very prevalent Mexican-American community in the United States, and that would be like the German story, for example. I mean, in the case of... Of my family, so I mean, all like three of my four grandparents definitely were born in Ireland, came as teenagers. Uh, one I don't know, my dad's dad, I just don't know. He just never said it. Uh, mm. I, I know he went to high school in New Jersey. I assume he was born in Ireland, but we just don't know. But it was very, it was made very important to us to like honor our heritage and have it be an active part of our life, not just something we pay lip service to mm. once a year. Like my grandfather specifically told me you know you're not just american you're irish american mm. you know we didn't leave ireland because we were sick of being irish you know my family left after the civil war and to varying uh, degrees were directly affected by the civil war so in my family it was pretty important but it kind of diverged a little bit with the different sides of my family dependent on where they grew up so mm. my mom grew up in a neighborhood with a very strong Irish population, mostly Irish and Italian. And there was a lot of, you know, problems and violence between those two groups there and elsewhere, also marrying each other. Uh, it was like Italians and Irish in America, just like fighting and fornicating and getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my, but my dad was like, would have been one of few Irish families on his block, you know, both growing up very, you know, poor, but whereas my mom's family felt kind of comfortable being Irish and being more outward about it, and my dad's family kind of felt more like keep your head low a little bit or just or be not really keep your head low be american essentially mm-hmm. be a, like a more of a pressure to be american than than my mother would have felt and 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 what about like because you know in 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 ireland you you got this catholicism and 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 uh, and a lot of things i mean it's a strong catholicism in in ireland relatively strong right still yes but it's changed a lot in recent years like so I mean, one, that the church has lost a lot of followers, and, and it mostly comes down to just the level of, of sexual abuse in mm. the Irish Catholic Church. Um, come out like an above average amount uh, mm. in a small area mm. uh, in which priests wielded, you know, societal influence and control historically that went way beyond just 
the goings on of the church. Mm. So it was such a fall from grace, literally, um, that even Irish people who have maintained Catholicism as their faith, there's much less, I think, a, a sense of allowing the church to dictate what you're going to do in your life, mm. like, and, and really forging your kind of own relationship to your Catholicism in a way that we didn't before. Yeah, so the church as, a, as an in-between between God and, and the human is has lost weight. In yeah, a way. they kind of lost their credibility. I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. we're still going to keep them there. We're not going to go Protestants where we can just, yeah. you know, yeah. where we don't need a guy to talk to God. God forbid we do that. But yeah. like, you know, but there is a sense that, you know, this is the Catholic Church does not have absolute authority mm. over your religious life as a Catholic. Mm. And I think that's why, I mean, you've seen in Ireland that they've legalized gay marriage and abortion both within, I think, the last five years. Mm. And we're talking about a country that, you know, I think 50 years ago, you could liken it to like a Catholic equivalent of Saudi Arabia in terms mm -hmm. of it being a religious state, essentially, in the Republic of it. Old school, see sucker suits and hoop skirts. Sometimes I'd rather to see because heaven knows I've learned the true turf. Is there anything else about kind of being Irish that is... How do you say visible in the tradition or, or, or something? You know, you know what I mean? Is that, mm -hmm. do, do you, I mean, do you have your own food or you know? Yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, so in the way that I think you know, being Irish is is kept alive in like diaspora communities um, is through through food for sure. Although you know, the best part about being Irish is never the food. No. You know, like <laughs> you know, no no disrespect to all of the fine Irish chefs out there, but I mean, you know, there are some classic dishes, but. You know that you don't go to Ireland for the food. You don't. You don't be proud of being Irish for the food either. Um, but the you know you, the literary traditions. You know you mm. read Irish authors. You're taught Irish authors from an early age. If mm. your family prioritizes that, you grow up with Irish music in your house. Mm -hmm. You grow up being you know at sometimes forced. If you're an American kid, you won't always be excited about being Irish, but you'll always be forced to learn some history to you know uh, understand how your family got there mm. it's prioritized that it's you know it's not uh, something of a book you know it's a part of your everyday life mm. and that's kind of reflected in and i think a lot of irish american families and probably irish australian families and everything including my own is that my generation born in like the second one born in the us we have irish names all like a lot of me and my cousins have super irish names some that are impossible to pronounce if I you're know. not irish uh, that, that's this is elementary level my last name is like is nothing but like but my parents generation they all have you know dan mike beth mm -hmm easy to pronounce names because it was like first generations, like they could still kick us out, you know, yeah, like we've got to assimilate. Yeah. We're not you know, second generation. Like they can't get rid of us now. So like my sister's name is Maraid and that's written M A I R E A D. So no one is going to know that, you know, if you're yeah. not Irish. So yeah. it's like making her acknowledge her Irishness every day. Mm. And I think that's how you maintain not just Irish people. I think that's how any group of people maintains connections. Some to identity. Their roots. Yeah, yeah. You force it to become a part of your everyday life, mm. not just something for the holidays. Mm. Um, as a kid in New Jersey, you were a troublemaker. Uh, at times, I was a little. I was a little bit of a troublemaker. Mm. Um, I don't know. I was just like kind of a like a smart ass. Usually, the kind of troublemaker that like, you know. I don't know. I knew when to stop and how far I could go, generally speaking. Mm. But there was a lot of like I don't know, like growing up in New Jersey and then also in New York as a you know a young adult. It was just a lot of fighting. Or you like went a, you went to 
Bronx. Yeah, you I studied at the 18, right? I went to Fordham University in the Bronx. Mm. It's a fantastic university. I got an amazing education there. Mm. Um, but a, a sort of theme continued that you know had been present through a lot of my childhood is like in New Jersey, in the Northeast, you know, people fight. You know, people, young men, they knuckle up for mm. sometimes semi-reasonable reasons, mostly stupid-ass reasons, mm. but it's like a thing, and you're not, and I don't think you have to consider yourself like a tough guy to have felt like, yeah, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna punch, you know, I'm gonna get into some fights, I'm gonna, you know, if I have to, I'm mm. not afraid to, mm. it's just like sort of a normal-ish thing, I don't mm. know. Mm. We definitely, did, like, when I would, uh, I think I've been in, I don't, like, I think I've, it's 23 fights or some, something along those lines. Mm. I've swung first twice in my life, mm. and that doesn't make me like an above average New Jersey dude, I don't think. You no. know, it just kind of like happened a bunch of times. Yeah. And that, and why was that? I mean, what, what were the occasions? I mean, what, what, would, what would be the reason? I mean, everything ranging from like a basketball related problem, uh, like between two different towns in one case, uh, it had me in the hospital, mistaken identity twice. Um, so somebody thought you were someone. Once else. they thought I was somebody else. Once they thought the guy I was with was somebody else, uh -huh. and tried to force him to take his hoodie down so that he would they could see him better. But he wasn't going to do that because you know we're not going to take orders from a random person. Mm. So we fought in the vestibule of a building. <laughs> <laughs> in that and, particular occasion. But and did you ever get like seriously injured or something? Yeah, yeah, I got uh, you know hospitalized with you know whatever some head contusions and stuff. Once when we got stomped out by. a big group of about 20 gentlemen mm. uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, on, on the campus of Princeton University, yeah. one of the world's of most the best exclusive <laughs> Prestige, universities. Yeah. Yeah. Prestigious. Yeah, Princeton, kid. Shout, shouts out to all the Princeton guys from uh, back in back in 03. Yeah. Uh, Richie and Von Zell, I think you guys were there. Yeah, they were going hard in Princeton back in those days. They, that was the basketball-related one. Yeah. And, and, uh, and what about, like... You know, you say this was kind of the normal thing. I mean, I, I, I can relate to that back in Iceland when I was like, I don't know, 15, 14 to maybe 17. It was quite a normal thing to go out and get into a fight. You know, mm -hmm. like you would go out in the weekends or something like that, or you would have some enemies in the neighboring school or something like that. And right. there was a beef that needed to be solved. And then you would, you know, take the, <laughs> take the fucking bus to somebody's home and knock on the door and try to get him out to come for a fight, you know, and... Yeah. I was always beaten, you know. I've never, I never won a fight in my life, not once. And <laughs> and uh, um, I, I, I just, I don't know. I just, I have a really hard time also beating someone up. I don't know mm -hmm. why. And and um, but what was what? what the, the, well, the only times that I was a little bit successful, I was always caught by the police. <laughs> you had the same. Uh, let's see. I'm not sure if I've ever had an interaction with the police where I was arrested. For fighting, mm. I don't believe that. I, like, so this this particular Princeton instance was a fun. I did have to go to the police station, but as a as a victim, mm. this this ties into a little little being Irish as well. So I mean, this is basically the to put it in a very quick way. A group of guys from my town were hanging out in Princeton. Some guys from Princeton started talking trash to us. This is broad daylight on a Saturday. We talk some trash back to them they go away some guy that we knew from their neighborhood said hey you guys better get out of here they're going to get a bunch of people and probably come jump you in like a few minutes mm. and we're kind of like yeah you know whatever they're not going to do that so we're starting making our way slowly towards our bikes we're 16 years old at this point and in new jersey you can't drive at 16 so we're like all right go, going towards our bikes 
I get separated from my group to continue talking trash to a, a group of Princetonians, and then I see just a swarm of white T-shirts. At that time, like everyone was just wearing long white tees. Just run up and just chase my buddies while they're going off on their bikes, and they grab my buddy Dan Joe and got him off his bike and mm. just started, you know, stomping on him. And then I just, you know, don't really remember much. I just sprinted up. I remember seeing a kid named Von Zell that I knew turn around. I hit him at a full punch. And then the next thing I know, I was in an ambulance. Mm. So it was one of those kinds of things. And so, you know, we, ever, we, we got the shit beat out of us, but in the end, we were fine. Um, then, you know, I, I knew who most of the people were, you know, mm. by, by name. I had known them for years. So I had to go to the police station. And I'm obviously not going to tell on any of these people, you know, like, but well, I should say, obviously as an Irish American from New Jersey, but like my dad's driving to me, the police station. And he's like, you know, you don't have to tell them anything. Right. This <laughs> is like, you know, like the Irish father lessons, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I know dad, I'm not going to tell them anything. And I think it was like, he was definitely proud in that moment. Cause he didn't, he didn't say anything. He just went like, uh-huh. Like, just like, like, mm. like a grunt and a nod, like good. All right. I don't have a snitch son. You know, so it was just like, hey, who's this? I don't know. Who's this? I don't know. Yeah, who's this? I don't know. I've played mm. basketball against these guys since I was like, you know, 13 years old. Yeah. So. And, uh, but you had some problem with the police, though. You told me, you told me before that you, you, and, and that, and you, and you also, I think you said that it, it's like, um, if, if you meet an Irish policeman, it's better for you. <laughs> it has been historically. Yeah. Historically. So I've had a, a, yeah, I've had a wide range of interactions with the, with the police. Uh, some when I'm doing nothing wrong, some when I'm breaking the law in a, in a fairly minor way. Mm. Um, so, for example, like one kind of experience I had when I was pretty young that was uh, a negative one was essentially one time me and my friends were accused of shoplifting at the supermarket in our town. Mm. Um, we, you know, maintained that we hadn't. What it turned out, one of my buddies who was working at the supermarket didn't swipe some candy mm -hmm. and like gave it to my buddy for free without telling him. So we're talking about like a theft that we didn't know about that was for about a dollar. Yeah. So, but we're, you know, basically saying we didn't steal anything. So they call the police and the police come and seal the freaking entrances to the supermarket. <laughs> for Put a us dollar. all up on the wall. <laughs> no, but, but more because we had, you know, we had the nerve to say we didn't steal anything yeah. and to say like, you know, stop accusing us of stealing things mm. and saying we can't leave, you know, mm. and all that stuff. So they put us all up on the wall and, you know, they're patting everybody down. Like, mm. come on, bro. Seriously? So I had had one interaction with one of the police officers before, and I can't remember what it was. Um, but he grabbed my nuts. This is Officer Jager. Uh, anyone from Montgomery will know this, uh, this asshole. I will say he's a piece of crap. He was fired from the force for stealing a, uh, a power bar from, uh, like, a, like, an energy bar from a, a, a little uh, corner store and, like, just saying, no, I didn't. Oh, he's a dick. But he grabbed my nuts and just twisted them. Mm. Just like, well, you know. And I'm on the wall, just like, of course, you know, in some pain. And I just hear, all of a sudden, my dad's voice. Mm. Like, my parents didn't live together, but my dad lived nearby. And I just hear my dad like, what the fuck? You know, like, what the fuck did my son do? You know, and like, turns out one of the cops there, my dad used to drink with the guy. So he starts mm. yelling at this cop and, you know, gets me off the wall and says, like, what did any of these fucking kids do? Mm. They're like, oh, they're all suspected of theft. Mm -hmm. So these assholes took every kid to the police station in an individual freaking squad car, six kids. Made like a big deal, like made it look like they stopped a freaking terrorist yeah. attack, these assholes. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's one. But then on the other hand, in this same town with the same police force, I had an experience with uh, a, an officer named named Tom Wayne. I think enough time has passed that I, that I can say this. Who just kind of you know saved me in a in a pretty significant way is that we there was a night where 
a group of friends of mine, we had gotten information that, you know, we were going to fight some guys, basically. We had gotten some information that they were going to bring weapons. Mm. So we grabbed not even knives, like things to like put at the end of a barbell, mm. you know, that you could smash somebody with if you needed to. Mm. They were 16 at the time. It was about three or four months after this Princeton incident, which, which comes, uh, comes into the equation. So it turns out that that was a setup. <laughs> so the person who told us that uh, to the bring people weapons, had weapons yeah. called the cops and said that there's a group of guys walking around with weapons in this location. Mm. So cops come, put us all against the wall. They find some of the stuff, not all of it. Uh, but they're about to take us in for weapons possession. And, and essentially because they got a tip, we were, you know, we were, you know, public enemy number one in this small town now. Mm. But Tom Wayne came, and Tom Wayne was my D.A.R.E. officer. Uh, D.A.R.E. is a program that you go through in uh, end of primary school called Drug and Alcohol, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Mm. So cops come and talk to you about the threat of drugs. And um, so he remembered me from that time, and basically he was the superior of these cops, said, let these kids go. You know, we said, you know, we're carrying these weapons because we're afraid. We got beat mm. up a few months ago in Princeton. They heard about that. And whether he thought that was true or not, you know, he gave us a chance not to have that kind of thing on our record, mm. um, which, you know, could have affected our university chances and everything. So that's a, that's a hugely positive experience I had. And and that's the thing, like in, in the States, like if you get a record, if, if something comes on your record, even though it's a minor thing or a misunderstanding, it can have a, a huge impact, right? As a juvenile, well, so, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's you can go to jail fairly easily mm. uh, in the United States. There's, like, I don't know if this is a, a fixable problem in, in the system mm. because there's just a lot of power uh, that comes to the individual police officer mm. and a lot of responsibility. And then there's a lot of responsibility that falls in other levels of the justice system, particularly on judges, mm. right? So two people could do the same crime, see different judges and have vastly different outcomes. Mm. A police officer can know to follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law and think about the impact on people's lives before making arrests rather than saying, okay, this is the law. I see you breaking it. I arrested you. So what, you know, sorry, that's the consequences. Mm. Right, and that makes all the difference in the world, rather than maybe what's written down legally. Mm. But do, do you feel because I mean, like obviously, you know, police brutality and and you know this whole thing. Um, you know, have you witnessed it as being an issue, um, both then police brutality and also then uh, racism in that sense? I mean, is oh yeah, it, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So. Of course, like not all cops are racist. Not mm. even most cops are racist. That's my my feeling. Um, mm. I don't think most cops abuse their authority, mm. uh, but I don't think it's five percent either. Mm. You know, I, I don't even think it's ten percent. I think it's more than that. Mm. I mean, we say like you know, I'm I am a white Irish American dude. You know, and I've been beaten to you know being put in the hospital by the police, and mm. I, I I got I did that I got that for running my mouth. Mm. Um, you know, I've been in jail for three days cause I didn't pay a $15 riding a bike on the sidewalk ticket. Mm. And then I got another ticket for sipping a beer on the street. You know, so I'm in jail with, you know, with whoever else got arrested for anything else in the Bronx, mm. uh, during that time, you know, it was actually, you know, kind of a fun experience in the end, but that's not the point, you know, like I've been stopped and frisked, you know, been thrown up on the wall of cops, like coming out of a, a white van, right. And just saying like, Oh, get up, get on the fucking wall. You know, like on my lunch break when mm. I was working at a damn homeless shelter, mm. you know? So like, but that's happened to me. So like, you just try to think as a black or Latino mm. dude or a woman in, in 
I mean, this is, I'm talking about New York City and New Jersey. You know, we're not talking about the most racist places mm. in the mm. United States mm. here. But the thing is, it's not all race. Mm. You know, it's not always race. It's profiling. It, well, no, it's like you'll have a, a, a Latino cop will jack up a black dude and treat him with disrespect. A black cop will do that to a Latino dude. Mm. A white cop will do it to another white dude. You know, like it's part of it is the mentality mm. of like we are like we are the law. We are not the enforcement of the law that some cops have. Mm. Like almost like an occupying force rather than, you know, a civilian service. security service. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, like that I think is is more of the problem. Mm. And that's what the difference is like when like who you're going to get like because you're saying like benefits of being irish the times when i've been let off by a police officer for uh being irish in both cases i was smoking pot in public as about like an 18 year old mm. or a 19 year old so like you know they not the biggest deal but i know that it was because i was irish and not because i was white mm. because they said exactly that you mm -hmm. know what i mean so it's not when people talk about race and stuff sometimes it's more complicated that if those cops were italian I'm getting arrested. Mm -hmm. If I was Italian, I'm getting arrested. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. one cop was Polish and one was, you know, Trinidadian. I'm getting arrested. Mm -hmm. You know, only mm -hmm. two Irish cops and a group of three Irish American guys mm -hmm. would would have that situation not end in an arrest. You know, uh -huh. and only if I answered the right Irish questions in the right way. You know, like because it would only work if I was actually Irish American, not just holding on to an Irish last name from a million years ago. Because they'll be like, you know, <laughs> we're Reardon, huh? Yeah. Both times, like Reardon, huh? Where are your people from? Uh -huh. You know, like uh, if I said Ireland, they would arrest me, you know, yeah. like because you're not really Irish. If you say Ireland, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, these counties, sir, Cary, Court, Clare. Like, what would your grandmother think if she saw you smoking weed out here in public on Webster Avenue like an idiot? Like she wouldn't be happy at all, sir. Like, where, 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 where your people live? Like, oh, you know, East Bronx, sir. Like, all right, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. like. I spent most of my life just worried about where my next dollar at You want some bullshit rap, I'm not the patty you should holla at Situations home, make me nervous just to think And if you came from my family, will you be nervous just to drink For you a man takes a drink, for us to drink takes uh, a man uh, So it pays off being Irish when you meet an Irish cop, for sure mm -hmm. um, So you're, you're kind of, you're studying, you go to university, what did you study? Uh, so I went to my undergrad for sociology. Mm. Uh, then I uh, then I completed a post uh, postgraduate teaching certification degree. Mm. Um, so in specializing in special education and primary education. Mm. Uh, then later on down the line, got a master's in political science. So on in, in, on one hand, you're studying and you're you're doing good as a student, I guess. I mean, you you yeah yeah, yeah I always and did then well. you're fighting and and smoking weed. Yeah 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 okay, yeah. Good. If I only, you know, once every couple of weeks, mm. but yeah, school was always, a, that, that's, that's always been the case in my family. Um, that like education is incredibly important. I think in a lot of immigrant families, like I have some people in my, you know, on my father's side of the family that, you know, went to prison for things and, and mm -hmm. did a lot of, you know, did some more serious criminal activity, but they all had college degrees. Uh -huh. Every single one had a college degree. Being smart and studying is like a priority for immigrant families. You might screw up other things, but you're going to have that damn diploma, you yeah. know, like in your prison cell on the <laughs> yeah, wall, on if, the if, wall. If, 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 that, if it comes down to that. <laughs> so I got school was ne also I was on scholarship, you know, so I yeah. was never going to let that slip. And, you know, my mother's from the Bronx. I got a scholarship to go to a school in the Bronx. You know, it was like you know, mm. that she wouldn't have been able to afford to go to. So it was like a big kind of honor thing. Mm. I was never going to screw that up. I always knew how to push it about just as close as I could, mm. but never, never screwed it up. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, you you made three rap albums, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, was that already back then? Were you already into that at the, this time? I oh mean, yeah. 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 I mean, I was probably rapping from when I was like fourteen years old, thirteen years uh-huh. old. Definitely from high school. Okay. Yeah, just that, like that's pretty common in a lot of places in the United States that like you might you freestyle with your friends when you're bored, mm-hmm. you know, or like you you bang on the the tables in the cafeteria at your high school and start just like rapping a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I'm from a you know, mostly like white and Asian town, mm-hmm. you know, so this is not exactly like a, a hip hop heavy community, but in the Northeast in general, you're you know you're never. You're never far from a city in New Jersey. You're never far from a place where hip hop mm. is actually actively being like produced and and the culture is being lived a little bit. So I think it's something that a lot of people are into. So mm. it kind of happened naturally. Mm. And what what is, what is the kind of like what kind of pushed you into it in a way? Like, or was there any specific? I mean, did you have someone in the family who was in music, or did you go and see a concert? Was there like a you know, you know what I mean? An aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think so any more than just like I would rap and you know, mainly freestyling and stuff as a, as a kid. And some people would say, Hey, you know, you, you're good at that. You did, you, you did that well. Mm. Um, and I'll be honest, it especially matters, you know, if you're, if a, an African-American, a black person, you know, as a white rapper, that's who, you know, you gotta be pleasing, not pleasing, but like making sure that you're not like disrespecting the thing and that you mm-hmm. take it seriously and that you're, you're trying to do right by uh, the art form. So as that, you know, as I started to have more opportunities like that, I was like, well, I enjoy this. You know, I write music kind of almost like impulsively, like without thinking about it uh, even today. So it just, it was more something innate. And then as I did it more, I felt more comfortable uh, in my, you know, right to, mm. to do it or mm. that I was entitled to to participate in the in the genre mm. and so it was more yeah it was more personal I mean I have a couple of people in my family that played the odd Irish instrument and and can play the piano but it's not really a familial thing yeah yeah it's not some some part of the traditions there but but the what's the influence there I mean who would, if you would mention like a rapper that that mm-hmm. the rest of us knows um that that you would look at and say okay th- this is a cool guy yeah Nas Mm. Nas is probably just got number a one. Grammy now, I think. Believe so, yeah. yeah. Still twenty. Jesus, when his first album came out in ninety four, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Illmatic was ninety four, I think. Mm. So he would be a definitely like early influence in terms of trying to mimic like delivery and mm. storytelling uh, aspects to songs. Uh, Big Crit is a more contemporary guy. Um, I like a lot of uh, kind of. Latin American rap as well, mm-hmm. um, and rap in Spanish. Um, a lot of because it's a lot of relationship to ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, when like Latin American rappers will speak a lot about their kind of dual uh, understandings of themselves and being caught between two worlds to a degree, and that kind of resonates with me as someone who uh, you know still holds my Irish culture pretty pretty dear to my heart, and has been kind of told at times that I shouldn't like, you know, some people will be like, yeah, why do you give a fuck? Or, you know, mm-hmm. like, or Irish people telling me you're, you're American. Don't tell people you're Irish, stuff like that. You know? So like, I like that aspect of it because that's what, and you speak Spanish, right? Yeah. 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 I speak Spanish fluently. Oh. Yeah. Trying to, trying to add Irish to that, but it's a, that's an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, and how, how does it work with, with rap? I've always been curious about this, you know, like what comes first, the, the, the the lyrics or the mm-hmm. song i mean or, or how how does this get born with you yeah yeah for me it's usually 
the beat first. Okay. Or like, or I don't know, I'll have an idea for something I want to write a song about or like one line. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I can build something on this and I'll need to listen to instrumental after instrumental until the feeling works Mm -hmm. until like, okay, that seems like the way that this line feels. And then I build it from there. Mm -hmm. That's most of the songs have, have happened that kind of way. And these three albums that you have done, did you do any of that back then when you were in, in, in university, like when you were younger or, or, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was recording like in my, uh, in my roommate's like shower studio that he made, he just, he bought a separate shower and just put it in his bedroom. I did a couple of songs that I'm not incredibly proud of from that, from that time, a couple that were okay, but a couple that, you know, a really drunk 20 year old would make. Um, but after that, I recorded my first album in New Jersey, uh, at my buddy Rich's studio in New Brunswick, um, shouts out to Rich, Urban Shocker, fantastic mm. rapper in his own right. Um, but then the last two albums I recorded here. Okay, and and, the, and you always went by the same artist name, Irish Cream. Irish Cream, yeah. Well. <laughs> it was from a, like a line that I said when I was like 15 or something like uh-huh. that. And I just let it, I think it was like, um, I'm Irish Cream because I'm smoother than a shot of Bailey's never met a day the paddle fail me or the capsule jail me. Like the kind of like line you would say when you're 15 and like, uh-huh. you know, don't give a shit because you're 15. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just like Irish Cream and it just stuck. And then there's also a, a Wu-Tang song called Cream, mm-hmm. uh, Cash Rules Everything Around Me. So I figured Irish Cream and I made Irish Culture Rules Everything Around Me. So I, a lot of my songs have Irish themes to them yeah, as well. Yeah, I've seen, seen that. I, I ran, through, I went through them yesterday. All of them. I, I, I liked it. It was actually cool stuff, you know. I appreciate that, dude. Um, so check check that out, guys. Irish Cream. It's on Spotify. At least two of no SoundCloud. Sorry. Yeah, SoundCloud. I got two of the three. Third one's coming soon. Yeah. The quickest way you can just Google Irish Cream NJ. Yeah. Because if you don't put the NJ, you'll get a bunch of Bailey's uh, Bailey's yeah. recipes and stuff. Yeah. But I'm the only Irish cream from New Jersey, at least. I'll put a link to it also in the episode description, so, oh. so people can check it out. And probably we'll have we're gonna have the music on this show as well. Right? Yeah, damn right. Um, but so you you graduate from school. Well, it was always obvious for you to be to study something in education, or or, or that no. was kind of a natural thing to, to go for, or what? No, I, that was I fought that. Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically didn't want to be a teacher when I went to university. It's like kind of the only thing I did know. Uh-huh. Um, just saw my parents work hard, um, particularly my mom, you know, working in special education, putting her heart and soul into it, um, working a lot of times in, you know, uh, schools with vulnerable communities, seeing, you know, as yeah. there, I just remember one particular time, like my mother coming home after one of her students was found murdered and just how sad she was and just like, I'm like, I want a fucking job. I can leave at the office. That, that was my thinking. But then when I was working while at university, I took a job as a teacher's assistant. And then I started working at an after school program at a homeless shelter. Mm. And it was just because I picked those jobs because, oh, those jobs sound good. And then by the time, you know, it was too late to switch majors by the time I realized, ah, shit, you know, I want to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I had to do it after I graduated. But yeah, it was something I was destined to do, but I, I fought it. Uh-huh. And, but it took you somewhere. I mean, you, you ended up in in Mexico, yeah. running a school. Um, what what brought you there? Helping to run a high school, anyway. Well, mm. it's, it's been a, a a nice career. I mean, I, I started in um, in the Newark, New Jersey, teaching fellows. Uh, mm. 
it's an urban school district in New Jersey. Um, then I was a special education teacher for three years in central New Jersey in the Robert Morris School. I mm. uh, was specializing in students with like behavioral disabilities and uh, some aggressive tendencies and a things like that. Troublemaker, dealing with troublemakers. Well, uh, this is, I would, th these weren't troublemaker kids. These were awesome, amazing kids with like severe issues. Uh, anger issues, uh -huh. uh, anger management and, and mood swing kind of, kind of things. Uh, they're all just graduated from high school, I think, uh, this year. Oh, my God, uh -huh. I believe. Um, but then, yeah, we moved to Prague, my, my wife and I, after three years of working in that job for, uh, basically for my wife to finish university more affordably than uh, could be done in the U.S., uh, yeah, and after a couple of years here, after my wife graduated, we decided to move back to Mexico. Well, in my wife's case, moving back to Mexico mm. um, to just give it a go and see what it was going to be like to live there. And yeah, my second year uh, at uh, Instituto Thomas Jefferson, I was offered the high school director job. Uh, which is something like between a principal and a vice principal in the American system, but kind of running the high school day to day. Mm. And, uh, and where in Mexico was that's this? Guadalajara, uh -huh. second biggest city in the country. And how how was this? How was this school? And how was living in in Mexico from someone from New Jersey? I loved both. I mm. loved working at the that school, and I, I loved living in Mexico. Um, the school has two campuses in, uh, in Guadalajara. I worked at one as a teacher and then one as a director, but also still a teacher. Mm. Um, I have nothing but the best things to say about my, my time there. Uh, the students were amazing. I it, like the, and the staff and my, my superiors, my coworkers, it was a, just a really a dream to work there. Um, and the school itself is interesting because it's a school for wealthier families, right? It's, mm. a, it's a school I wouldn't have been able to afford to send my children to without very significant assistance from the school, even as the, the director. Mm. So again, the kids are amazing, but you see some things that for, for an American were kind of shocking. Like most of the kids have drivers, you uh -huh. know, for, for example. So there's a wall around the school, there's security. When the kids are getting dropped off, it's all drivers. You're, confir you're confirming that the kid is, you know, all good. The kid is with the driver they should be with and all that stuff. And at first you're like, oh, my God, what the hell? Like a driver? Who, who, who is a driver? Mm. Even if you can afford it. Like that's like my mentality. Mm. Then I'm like, wait a sec. If you don't have a safe school bus, you know, or public transportation system, mm. of course you pay for a damn driver. Mm. You know, like what else? Like how else would you get this kid here if you're working? You know, mm. like, so it becomes a kind of understandable thing. But you have, like one, one particular experience kind of shows the, the, the funny situations I, I find myself in is like, so one day I'm just sitting in my office and I got a call on, on the walkie-talkie from one of the security guards. And he's like, hey, uh, professor, um, one, of the, uh, one of the security guards for this kid accidentally came on the campus with a gun. Because mm -hmm. we tell them you have to leave your guns like in the car outside while you're dropping the kids off. And the guy just walks up. And like every interaction in Mexico, it's so friendly. It's so fun. You know, the guy just walks up like, oh, sorry, you know, professor, just forgot my gun. Just like shows me the gun. And I'm just like, oh, what are you going to do? Everybody forgets their gun every now and again. He's like, yeah, I took the one out of my out of my ankle. I remembered that one. Forgot about this one. Oh, my God. What? Mondays, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> and then, you know, they're like, all right, you know, have a great day. And it's like a wonderful interaction. But I'm just like, Oh yeah, that was just a guy with a gun on my school campus, you mm. know. Like, but it's it, that's kind of like you know because I I went I was lucky enough to go to Mexico a few years ago and I spent uh, I don't know like uh, three weeks in in three different places around mm -hmm. Mexico, and uh, 
obviously having read some of the like you know TripAdvisor and some of the mainly the ones for the Americans right reviews sure then I I was like okay we're gonna get kidnapped and then we're gonna get you know our heads are gonna be cut off and yeah, you gotta whatever. read Europeans yeah. reviews and uh, and then it turned out when we we came there it's it's a, it was great it was just it was amazing mm-hmm. and uh, um, it was also in a way that you know people were super like friendly and they said listen just stay away from there and you know don't do this yep. and don't do that and the people that you did airbnb with or or the, your uber driver or whatever they always you know like oh, okay just be careful here and that and so on mm-hmm. but i guess i guess that's what you're describing though like this um security around those risk kids it, it's there for a reason absolutely know? yeah i mean you have to have it so like I loved living in Mexico. I will live in Mexico again for sure. I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's only when I'm going to retire or, or sometime before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you have to factor in the security situation into your life just in a way that you don't in Europe, anywhere in mm-hmm. Europe or anywhere in the United States, really. I mean, still, well, to a degree in the Bronx, I would think about things the same or a similar way. But but really, it's, you know, it's something you get used to, though. So it doesn't really affect your life as much uh, as as people might think after mm. a while you really do you get, get used, used to it, it right yeah. yeah you don't take the certain chances i i never felt threatened ever i mean mm. i speak spanish pretty well but it's not like anyone would actually think i'm from mexico if i talk no. but it depends on you know and also like you know when people you can't, see you people well that, that's the, that's another thing that people don't realize about mexico there's a lot of yeah, parts lot of, of mexico light, with yeah, a lot yeah. of light-skinned people yeah, and true. i happen to live in one of them so like the, you know if i was living in mexico city mm. i would look like a foreigner mm. but in guadalajara i mean there were a lot of kids in my school that looked like they were from sweden and they're like mm. 93 generations in mexico or something mm. you know so like that's that's a bit to it. Like you just have to take it into consideration. But that's I, I'm speaking as someone who didn't live in one of the most dangerous parts of the country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are places in Mexico that like, are really dangerous. Yeah, it's like everything you hear is true, mm. but it's never true about everywhere. Mm. You know, like there's never one moment in time where all of Mexico is dangerous at the same time. Yeah, yeah. it changes. Yeah, you know, yeah. like safe places become dangerous because of this, that, or the other thing. Mm. You know, now it's like uh, a lot of my my wife's region uh, is the central Mexico. My wife's from the state of San Luis Potosi, which mm. uh, most people don't go to because it's in the middle of the country, but it's fucking incredible. Mm. It is the best state in the country, in my opinion. But like areas of that part of Mexico are now becoming dangerous because of gas pipelines. Mm-hmm. that have been built so mm-hmm. now there's like industrial level gas theft that the cartels are doing so places that never had anything to do with drug trafficking have been traditionally safe mm-hmm. are now all fucked because of oil you mm-hmm. know so it's like so it's like a whack-a-mole it, yeah. game one it thing moves, goes down yeah. the other one pops up yeah and uh what it, what you know like so you, you you actually came to prague from the u.s then you go back to mexico mm-hmm. and then you get back here right yeah yeah, with a year in Barcelona between. Uh huh. Yep. And what brings you here? What, 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 why, why Prague? Well, the first time around, as I mentioned you, before, wait, do you just, want another beer? Uh, yeah, and actually, yeah, you need to go to the toilet. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, man. Um, where were we? Yeah, we were talking about um, why Prague. So you kind mm-hmm. of got here, went to Mexico, Barcelona, and then back here. Yep, yep. First time to Prague was just practical. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife had finished her two-year associate's degree. 
Um, and as a foreign resident in the U.S., she couldn't get like in-state tuition, what you'd call like re local residence tuition for public universities. So to go to a public university in New Jersey would have been like $30,000. So it was like, you know, forget that. Um, so I, I'm an Irish citizen. So we went looking for schools in Europe that would accept her credits. She got into a school in Prague. Said, All right. Looks pretty. Mm. Seems like they got schools. Let's give Prague a go, you know, like, and, uh, the second time we came back, you know, when we left, we never thought we'd be coming back, but, uh, the city just, it gets, gets into your skin. Like mm. uh, we just missed it. So this, this time we're back just to live out a few more years here and we're doing the green card stuff for the U S mm. we'll be moving back next year, most likely, but we just wanted to get a few more Prague years under our belt. Mm. And, and you've been teaching here. I mean, you're teaching here, right? Yep. Yep. I've been a primary school teacher here for, I guess, a total of four years, and I'm now a middle and high school English and history teacher. Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to to um, talk to you later about that, but I, I think I will actually do it now. I, I, sure. On that on that topic, because um, um, like now, at obviously during this twelve months of COVID that we have had, um, Czech Republic is the country I think, at least in the Europe, if not the world that has kept kids away from school the longest. Or yeah, we're up there. Yeah. And uh, I'm just curious about this, um, being a teacher, how, this, <clears throat> how does this work? I mean, like, because from one day to the other, uh, kids are not allowed to come to school and they're supposed to stay at home and the parents are homeschooling or, right. over, or supervising them in some way or over, over, overlooking. Right. Was the system ready for this? Uh, I definitely not. Mm. I mean, my own experience has definitely been better than I would say the average teacher in the Czech Republic. I don't teach at a public school right mm. now. Mm. Um, so most of my students, but not, not all have access to electronics at home. Mm. Um, but I mean, if your average, uh, Czech public school teacher where a lot of your students have one computer and maybe two or three siblings, um, uh, and especially with older teachers, I know at the school that I was at, some, some teachers would just like, basically set work and mm. say, do it and send it to this email. Some would say uh, schools have gotten better, but it would be like hodgepodge, you know, every teacher doing their own kind of thing. Mm. And for like a sixth grader in their first year of, of dealing with having seven teachers, they'd be like, what, you know, their heads were exploding. Mm. And, and so, and it can't like, no matter how well you do it, it can't be equitable to kids from lower income situations. It can't be equitable to big families that can't afford electronics for every one of their children. Mm. It can't be equitable to kids with learning disabilities, for kids with socialization issues, for kids with, you know, fucked up home lives that mm. need the structure of school. You know, it just, and I don't, for some of those things, there's no way the system can really be adequately prepared. Mm. But so, no, it, it has not been. I mean, we I think... We're just fighting the good fight and just trying to, uh, from the teacher standpoint, just remembering why we do the job and just trying to think of this as some other challenge. Like there's all a million other myriad various challenges you face as a teacher. Like, But I guess like from for you, I mean, if, if you look at it just from your personal point of view, I mean, you, you were used to going into a classroom. Um, I mean, I've heard it in your comedy. You use some of the examples of what sure. happens in a classroom in your comedy. And I mean... That isn't that part of the motivation. Oh yeah, no, I, it's like, like te online teaching. It's like all of the 
all of the parts of teaching that you don't love are there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reasons why you do the job are absent. You mm-hmm. know, like most teachers enjoy, you know, their students, you know, yeah. they like hearing their thoughts, their ideas, seeing their faces, seeing them respond to the learning mm-hmm. and you know, not seeing a bunch of, you know, initials across a, a board, you know, cause you're trying to get 16 year olds to keep their cameras on mm-hmm. for 45 minutes is a battle you eventually give up on. So like, and uh, especially I'm in my first year at a school. Mm-hmm. So the first couple of months I did manage to get to know my, my students fairly well, but not that well. And I mean, now after a all these months online, there's a couple of quiet kids. I, I almost can't remember their faces, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it's a, it's, I don't have that connection. And I think kids crave that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and they're missing that in a, in a major way with their friends, obviously, and with their classmates, but with the teacher and with the structure of the classroom, there's something mm-hmm. about like, you know, being in a place, if you have a good teacher, it being in a place where you're like, okay, I'm going to be taught something that is, at least somewhat valuable by someone who cares about what they're doing and is going to try to make it enjoyable for me. Mm. And you're being kind of served in that respect as a student, Mm. you know, and you never really get that in any other aspect of your life where someone else's entire responsibility is to you and your development, Mm. you know? So it's, I miss being a part of that because now I just feel like I'm imparting information Mm -hmm. rather than teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, um you mentioned it like you know there are there, there could be kids out there that are are suffering you know like and not just suffering because they can't get to school but they're suffering because there is something wrong in the family mm-hmm. or there is you know alcoholism or violence or, or sexual abuse or something like that sure um is there any sort of an alarm system on that i mean do you know what i mean is there is there, uh-huh. is there some way that teachers can detect this or do you I get mean, trained for it or or well I, I can't say what the Czech Republic standard training mm-hmm. is on that. In in the U.S., that is part of your teacher training, how, like how to recognize signs of abuse and signs of trauma and all that kind of stuff. But doing that online, mm-hmm. the kids don't have their cameras on. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. But I mean, just to I, obviously we're not going to share the the school that I work at, just or, or the students' names or anything. But something like this uh, happened just well, I guess sort of today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one of my students I do had some problems uh well just didn't have an ideal home situation to put it very lightly Mm. um and had some mental health uh issues and she had shared that with me um noticed she hadn't come to class for a couple days so i got a little worried talked to the school psychologist and then got an email today that she's been checked into a facility for a couple weeks to you know to do what she's got to do. Mm. Um, and that would be the kind of kid, like the, the school I'm at, it's a partially a boarding school mm. that gives kids scholarships. Mm. So um, this girl normally would live on campus and have a very, you know, productive and healthy Social. place to, to be. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't know what's going on exactly, but at least I knew in her case, she had shared something with me mm. because you know, I don't know. I try to make a connection with my students, mm. but not every kid does that. If mm. there's a quieter kid or a kid that's more self-conscious about their issues, there's no way you're going to be able to detect it, even if their camera's on. Mm. You know, you detect that by watching a kid's body language, seeing how they interact with other students, seeing how they look at you in the eyes or don't look at you in the eyes when you're speaking to them. You know, all of the things that you are trained to to do to be able to recognize when a kid is in a bad spot, you can't do on mm. Zoom. Mm. You know, and from a educational and, a, and let, let's say a, I don't know what you call it, like a social development point of view. I mean, 
now this this is a fucking year that we're talking about now mm-hmm. and and we have according to the current um yeah as it looks like now is we're looking at five six more years at the current rate yeah, <laughs> if, if we're right, gonna Jesus. if we're gonna treat it in the same way as we're doing now i mean do you see already something where you where you think that oh this is gonna be like a generation that lost something you can't tell yet because mm. uh, there, there's sort of some precedence for it, and, and I think that's what uh, a lot of like educational researchers are looking at mm. is uh, effects after wartime periods, for example, mm. or other significant events that disrupt education. Because there have been, and yeah. there have been in developed places in recent enough times. You know, like so, look at you know what happened to education in Serbia. You know, in in two thousand. You know, after you know eight years of, you know, intermittent warfare where school would have been disrupted, you know, mm. uh, on top of all the trauma of warfare. So, like, I'm not particularly worried about that if it's really, like, one lost academic year. Mm. And a, a bit of last year, and this is, like, the lost year. Mm. If it's a lost year and things return to normal-ish, then I think on a macro level, it's not going to have a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, in individual cases, yeah, yeah, there are, absolutely. There are sad stories and, mm-hmm. and, you know, but are there any, is there anything positive to be drawn from this in a way? Like, do you, do you, do you see mm-hmm. that this will impact education in the future? Will education be partially online, less in person? Are, is, are there any aspects like this that you think are going to come out of this? Maybe. It's too hard to say if there even are any individual positives, but there's no way they outweigh the negatives. Mm. Um, in fact, even one of the potential positives I see as having a lot of uh, negatives to it. So if we look at like normalizing online education, mm. which I mean, at the university level and above, it's already quite normalized. Uh, and, and there are online high schools and things already, and there have been for some time for kind of for specific circumstances, I would hate to see that expand. Mm. I would really hate to see that expand. Uh, I don't mind its existence. I don't want it to be banned or anything. But the, the it's such a small minority of students at a developmental age mm. that would benefit more from that kind of situation than they would from the public school. And, yeah. It would have to be like, you know, like I'm in a military family and, you know, my dad's stationed in friggin', I don't know, Somalia or something, you know, like uh, that's an extreme example, but like really to have a, a physical or really significant impediment to you attending the local schools near where you live. Mm. It's the only really justification for it. And I'm afraid that it'll become normalized enough that people start prioritizing convenience in a way over quality. Cause it's not the same. Mm. I'm teaching my ass off. It's not the same. Mm. It's just I'm doing. I'm saying the same things. I am, but I can't get the kids out of their seat. I can't. Mm. You know, I can't do all these things. It's just not the same. It's better for some kids. It should exist, but I fear that like that schools are going to start implementing that, mm. and that'll allow them to fire some teachers and have some people be part time that they don't need to give necessarily benefits to, mm. or you put them as long term suppositions. There's a lot of yeah, assholes you don't need that will take space, advantage of you know, that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, yep. you, there's a lot of cost cutting that could be done by by this, and, and you see it in companies. Huge slippery slope for that. And you see it in companies. I mean, companies are not talking, and, and they're already started. They're reducing office space, and they're sure. telling people you can stay home forever. And I mean, I'm an old, I'm an old fart, you know. So you know, I could never be at home in the pajamas for a year. You know, I just, I would yeah, go crazy. I hate it. And uh, Me too. but on the other hand, I also need to, I need to accept that there, there might be generations younger than me that 
you know, find this okay. And maybe, mm -hmm. you know, who knows? Anyway. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, so you're not a, a, just a teacher. I'm just a teacher. Oh. <laughs> well, great. No, no. I, I get no implications there. You man. do more things than teaching. Let's right. say it like that. Um, and, 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 and one thing that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is the stand-up comedy. Mm. Uh, how did that come about? I mean, when, when, where did that start? I mean, you were obviously, uh, you were able to run off your mouth as a kid and a teenager. Indeed. But comedy... Yeah, I, I was just one of those things. I always liked to crack a joke. Um, I was told that I should try stand-up. Um, I didn't do it until I moved here. Mm. Um, a buddy of mine from uh, the Gaelic football team named Luke Ryan, who's uh, actually the founder of all English language comedy here in Prague, mm. um, basically said that he's holding a workshop to train would-be comedians, that I should really do it. He trained me up. and How I long ago was this? When eight years ago. Seven, uh -huh. well, maybe seven and a half, eight years ago, yeah. So this is on your kind of earlier earlier time in, in Prague. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. maybe a year in, maybe six months here. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, no, six or seven months here. Then I gave it a go. And, uh, and, then, and then, so you kind of started out here. And how was the scene here in Prague at that time? I mean, it was ver like almost non-existent. I mean, it was actually like forming before our very eyes with, mm. I mean, I think there were, there were under 10, uh, English language comedians. And I mean, we were having like improv and stand up nights together just to get, uh, people to fill the globe, you know, small, yeah, kind small of bookstore cafe, bar, yeah, yeah. um, every two weeks. And yeah. as far as I know, we were the only English language comedy going at that time. Mm. Um, so it's grown like exponentially. I mm. mean, in normal times, I mean, I think there's probably eight or nine ongoing shows now but at the time yeah it's a it's a, it's become a big scene i mm -hmm. mean i had a, i had one of your colleagues um, carmine on an yep. earlier episode great carmine and uh, i actually saw when I, yeah when i saw you the first time i think he was on at the same time but um what i've i've always been a little bit curious about the, this with the stand up is that it's kind of like an iceberg in a way that that there's like or it seems to be from the outside that it seems to be like, and now I'm using my hands to dr draw here in the air. It seems Thank to you, because I, I actually don't know. I, I just want everyone to know that Omar right now is giving me a very helpful visual aid. Because yeah. I'm a guy, don't know what icebergs look like. Never seen one. <laughs> I need an Icelandic visual aid. So it's, a, it's, yeah. So there is a tiny little tip that comes out of the, out of the sea, but there's a much bigger part below. And right. And to me, it seems like that applies to stand-up comedy in a way, that there are some people at the top that make a living out of this, mm -hmm. and then there's just a whole lot of hustle below the surface in a way. Mm -hmm. And and I'm just wondering, why, why can't this industry pay more? I mean, what's, what's wrong in the equation somehow? I mean, why... Why can't someone? Why can't more people make a living mm -hmm. from it? What has to happen? You know, wh wh where is is the is the dollar being cut unequally? Is right. it enough dollars? Right. I mean, part of it's just like th there is a, a certain demand limit mm. that mm. Uh, that's going to drive compensation down at a certain point, and I don't know that that expands really, other mm. than expanding with expanding population. I don't know that that ever really contracts either. I mean, mm -hmm. I think people enjoy laughing just at a kind of static rate. But the other issues are, I don't think it's valued as much as it needs to be yet mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, and I think that's it goes one of two ways where in 
a country like the Czech Republic, for example, it's not really it it's, hasn't been valued until very recently, even in Czech. Mm-hmm. So people are just like, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. So I mm-hmm. don't know why I should need to pay you this decent amount for you to do your thing. Um, whereas if you look at a place like you know London or New York, where then it's the opposite. Everybody's a fucking comedian, so I don't give a shit about you, person A. You know, like let me know when you've been on Jimmy Fallon show, and we'll cut you a check. Or like, mm-hmm. essentially, it's mm-hmm. just like the competition is so. Um, so fierce and what ha- what's happened I think is the I don't know that this relates to how many people can get paid but who gets paid is there's so much of it that has nothing to do with how funny you are when you get on stage mm-hmm. you have to really just be an absolute you have to be an entrepreneur essentially like mm-hmm. you're to be a successful comedian if you are going to support yourself and God knows support a family you are a business so, mm-hmm. like, you need to promote yourself as such, as a brand. So, if you're not willing to, like, I think it's 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 getting hard to be someone, like, in my position where, like, I'm a funny enough dude, and I can make a little bit of money off it, mm-hmm. but, like, not so much. It's hard to go halfway now. Mm-hmm. You're either, like, a local dude just, you know, getting shows off the strength of people who know you, mm-hmm. or you're trying to lean in and make it your career because it's it's hard to find a place that's in between. But to lean in, it means you're living on social media. You know, like you're making videos to support your your stand up sets. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's a whole thing. And for me, I'm not. I, that's not me. I just I, I I could force myself. But it's not natural to really promote myself in that way, which is weird as someone who does two different performance arts. Mm. But that's a lot of what it is to be successful in in comedy today mm. is getting a social media following, and just and that's kind of it. Mm. So, because I mean, it sounds like also what I what I felt. I mean, uh, talking to comedians that I know and and or people that I've I've, I've had the chance to talk to, and then. I don't think that people understand the work behind it, you know, like right. even even at a level where you're not spending all your time on social media or something, but just to the craft kind itself, of, yeah, yeah. To, to write your material and to, to seek inspiration, to practice and to, you know, get your, your shit together, you know, mm-hmm. it, it it's not just, I mean, okay, the show is maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes on stage, but behind that event or that Let's say that that sketch or whatever you, I don't know what yeah, you, what yeah. do you call that like a set yeah that set there's um there's maybe thirty forty hours yeah of practice writing and and you know mm-hmm. in in total yeah yeah and and, and it yeah it, it, because you can't just you're not like a clown that can just be kind of you know switched on and off you know it's like yeah, go on yeah. the stage to say something funny you know it's the worst thing you could say to a comedian ever like like tell me a joke or like tell yeah. me something funny like yo. But I guess that's the expectation. If I, if I was a weaver, you know, and I, yeah. make me a fabric. Yeah. Weave me a sweater. Yeah, exactly. But, the, but, uh, but I guess, though, that you get that a lot, right? Because, you're, you know, people say, oh, you're a comedian. You should be funny. Thankfully, not that much. Oh? Thankfully, not that much. Only the douchiest okay. uh, of the douche. Uh, I think... uh, Oh, you know what? I was hesitant, but it's St. Patrick's Day. I will say this proudly. I don't think, I think only English people have ever said that to me. Okay. Only English people. Fuck the English. (laughs) Well, you know, not not fuck them, but like, you know, they have some less than endearing characteristics, so I don't Mm. mind pointing one out on the day of my people. (laughs) But um, on this, um, so 
to get to that next level, you need to put in a lot of work. And I guess you kind of have to get on one of those big shows or you need to, you know, you know what I mean? Is there, is there like a career, career path? I think this? nowadays that, well, that, you know, there's a flip side to it. So the negative side of the social media aspect, I think from like, I don't know, a comedy purist standpoint is that there are maybe situations where the funniest person is not the most famous person, mm. right? Or, or the most well-known person is not the one doing the best stuff. Mm. There are plenty of examples of the people at the top being the best in, in the game as well. Um, and I don't want to come across as bitter or something. I'm comfortable in my funniness. Mm. Um, but the positive side of it is that there's less of a traditional route now. Mm -hmm. So if you are social media savvy and that's like, it's not even about savviness. If you're just comfortable living your life like that, like, you know, really very publicly from the start, mm -hmm. um, then there's a lot of avenues that you can get to to fame from because you you have the channels yourself in a yeah. way you don't not dependent on netflix or or cnn or exactly. whatever you know there's been a like there's been a decent pipeline with like basically like youtube or like kind of independent comedy groups going to snl like getting mm -hmm. a job at snl based off that and then from snl to the world you know your andy sandbergs mm -hmm. of the the traditionally those are people coming from improv theaters and mm -hmm. stuff like that mm -hmm. but now there's some just people making things that are funny. Mm. People think they're funny. They give them a job, and then the jobs keep moving up. Mm. Uh, I know a guy who was uh, on SNL from my high school. Mm. Good guy. Mm. He was a couple years older than me. Not that funny of a guy, mm. you know. But <laughs> got on the right, got the right break. Yeah. Mm. Every day is a crisis. Every day is a crisis. Um, but so when you when you do when you make comedy and when you perform comedy, I mean, like you you are you you know what what's what inspires you? I mean, is it kind of everyday thing? And I mean, I think you were making fun of you uh, having a Mexican wife being. Kind well, I was of, making I mean, fun of me. Yeah, like all of my themes are. I mean, I've I've only done two shows in the U.S. So when I move to the U.S. again and start doing comedy, I'll have to switch a lot of what I do thematically because mm. a lot of it is either like fish out of water stuff, like mm. you know, like kind of looking at or with a local audience trying to make them look at where they live in a different way through the eyes of somebody else. Mm. So make things that are actually really kind of ridiculous or silly that they would never notice mm. because it's just the way it is. Mm. Um, or a lot of com now that have lived in various places comparing a lot of things. So I do a lot of that kind of, and then the basics of comedy, which is, you know, excuse me, Mm. working with some kind of stereotype and then defying it or setting up an expectation and then defying it. But theme-wise, mm. it tends to be like, I'm an Irish dude from New Jersey and I'm living in all these places that I have no business being and mm. here's what I think about what's going on. Mm. Here's what I think when you call a place dangerous. You know, like this is, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, that's funny to me. You know, like uh, things like that. They, they call Palmovka here, which is a, a very friendly train station mm -hmm. changing point. They call that dangerous because somebody got stabbed there in 74. You yeah, know? exactly. It's, exactly. It's like it really lives. The legend lives. You exactly. Know? When someone got stabbed six years ago and yeah. like when someone got robbed six year, six weeks ago, uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, yeah. Danger lives a very good life here in this country. And, uh, but, and does it come easy for you? I mean, like these, uh, out of those experiences and these situations to make, you know, material for your sets i mean is it easy or is it uh it's weird it's i i guess every comedian has different experiences of this but i think mm. one kind of thing that a lot of people share is that it's like 
rivers of comedy and then you hit a dam you know like so uh, like there's large long periods where i can't come up with anything mm. and then there's times where the material just flows mm. and that's how i've written most of my stuff is in like two month like productive periods followed by four months of like i don't know what am i gonna do this could be funny eh? mm-hmm. and then you just know mm-hmm. at some times mm-hmm. and the the um to get into this, I mean, I guess you know people are are have stage fright and they're shy and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. how how was your first show? Well, so my first show actually went really well. Mm. I mean, I I can't I have a video of it. I can't stand to watch it because mm. it's not. I'm, I am better now, mm. uh, but it was not. I didn't bomb. You know, I got some laughs. I felt okay about it. Mm. I was here in Prague. I had my mom and my sister and my now wife there. Uh-huh. Um, so I mean, it was a very. And was that before you proposed to her? That was before. Yeah, that was my still my That's girlfriend a huge, at that time. Huge risk to take, though. Well, first, well, I'll tell you this: first time I did comedy in English, the my mom, sister, and my uh, <laughs> girlfriend were there, and the first time I did it in Spanish in Mexico, my mother-in-law, all of my sisters-in-law, and my wife was there. So you must so, have done good. They're all in your life still. Exactly. Mm. I'll tell you, I, I'm not too dirty of a comedian. I'll throw the you know I'll throw a fuck in there every now and again for for emphasis, but. You know, I think if I can't do a joke in front of my mom or my mother-in-law, I'm going a little too too deep. Okay, so that that's kind of your line in a way. You you you, that, yeah. Let, that your moral compass, let's say, or or I don't know. Yeah, it's moral, I don't moral. know. It's just I, I don't think about shit like yeah. I don't really. I'm gonna go too far here, but yeah, I fucking I don't really respect comedians that rely too much on Profanity shock or, stuff. Uh-huh. Um, profanity is one thing because the, the way, you know, the, the, the linguistic uses of the word fuck and all the like cursing, I don't want to like put that down by itself because that can be mm-hmm. up to the individual. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're relying on doing jokes about fucking incest and the church and rape mm-hmm. and, you know, like, I don't know, immigrants, like any shit like that, like you can, and I don't want to be like, oh, it's censorship. You can play with any issue. Mm. Like, but that shouldn't be your thing. That shouldn't be what defines you as a comedian is like, I'm pushing the envelope. I'm saying what people won't say. Mm. It's like, no, you're just like being an asshole and like finding a medium that allows you to be an asshole by covering it up by, oh, it was just a joke. That's like what assholes say in regular conversation. Oh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. That's what so you, narcissistic parents say also. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But you give them a mic and then they really are just kidding. Or mm. at least it lends some credibility to the bull shit so like i don't really have a lot of a lot of love for that so that's my like i'll deal with issues of racism i'll deal with stereotypes of people Mm. but i'll only deal with stereotypes of people that i'm i know Mm. like like if i can't do a joke about mexico in front of my wife it's not a good joke if i can't Mm. do a joke about the middle east in front of my you know my, my buddy ahmed is a sudanese dude um that it's not a good joke you know like so like I have personal relationships and have like had a lot of my life formed by people of a lot of different ethnic groups. Mm. So they're fair game for me to make fun of them a little bit, the same way I make fun of Irish people yeah. or, or the U.S., but always coming from a place of love. Mm. And I think as a comedian, a lot of times you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to come out and say that. Like, hey guys, I'd just like to let you know all the list of personal relationships I have with people that make it okay for me to tell you these jokes. Yeah. But I think people know. I think mm. you can feel. Mm. When like I'm making fun of some people that I that are just right here with me, mm. I, I love them. I just make fun of different people. That's my thing. So I'm gonna make fun of them. To when you're like trying to punch down, 
mm. at people. Like the crowd knows the difference. Mm. I think that's the like if you're gonna deal with an issue, don't deal with something that you don't personally know that you haven't been personally affected by, because then you're taking advantage of it. You're not actually trying to engage with it in mm. any way. Like, but it's interesting, you know. Like it's interesting to hear you say this because um, it made me think. Like, okay, so is this is this the Catholic in you in a way? Do you know what I mean? This kind of mm. respect to and and and. You know, you say if I can't say a joke in front of my mom, I'm not going to say that joke. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's more that- Irish than Catholic. Uh huh. More Irish than Catholic, or even maybe more New Jersey. I don't know. Like, mm. it's just so when you think about like we're talking about like racism and the police and racism in the U.S. Like, think about a place like New Jersey that's so diverse and it and it genuinely works. You mm. know, like we got problems in Jersey, but like ethnic hatred really isn't one of them. And it's not that nobody is racist or nobody has like views about other people's ethnicities. It's that everybody does mm. and everybody kind of shares them in a way, you mm. know, like, you know, you expect Puerto Ricans and Dominicans to kind of not like each other. And of course, Haitians and Dominicans have a million problems. And of course, Chinese and Korean people don't get along too well. Mm. And of course, Irish and Italians don't like each other too much. And you grow up around a b- bunch of people, you start making jokes about Punjabis to people who are from Gujarat. Mm. You know, just like everybody represents where they're from. Mm. You know, a good Italian buddy of mine, when we were when we would greet each other as kids, I would call him a WAP. You know, we'd grab hands. Mm. I would call him a WAP, which is an Italian racial slur. And he'd call me a Mick, which mm. is a, you know, Irish yeah, Mickey, ra- yeah. ethnic slur. Mm. You know, like you fucking Mick, you dirty WAP. Mm. You know, like, so it's it's that kind of understanding of it where like everybody is something. So if you know people and you respect them, then yeah, take the piss out of them because that's mm. what your day-to-day conversations are like anyway. Mm. But if that's not your lived reality, you don't have the fucking right. You know, you don't have the, the credibility. Mm. But I think talking about that, I mean, because you know, obviously, um, I don't know. I mean, there there is a lot of talk about cancel culture, and I'm 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 not even. I've been thinking about this ter- term. I'm I'm not sure that it's a, that you can call something a cancel culture because mm-hmm. it's it's just an opinion, and and that there shouldn't be an issue that someone has an opinion that that opposes my opinion. I mean, right. there should never be an issue. Of course, it's an issue if 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 I'm not allowed to have I don't know a political view that is um, the wrong view and I lose my job or something. Or, sure, or, sure, or I sure. Write an editorial or a newspaper and it, it pisses off hundred people and they complain and then I lose my job because right. that's not fair, you know. But and 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 that kind of I was thinking about like how does this work with comedy because I mean and now you well it's eight nine years that you've been involved in comedy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you see a lot of comedy, and you follow other comedy than just your own. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, yeah. Has has this changed comedy? I mean, is comedy different now than eight years ago? Not not that much. Mm. I, I don't think like it's like the 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 person who's like so talk about cancel culture. I mean, it, it is sort of like this nebulous term now because like. Mm it gets thrown around so much that it starts to lose any finite meaning. It's like the boy who cried wolf, Mm. you know, effect Mm. of it. But in terms of the comedy world, the comedians that are most affected by that are the kind of comedians I was talking about before. Mm. The people who shock to shock or Mm. push buttons just to push buttons. And now I'm not, I don't want to be in a position where I'm saying, Oh, you know, know, I don't like what they do. So fuck them. It doesn't affect me. No, that's not the case. I mean, of course they will be the most affected and you know, like, all right, to Mm. a degree, but I think the way that, this could affect comedy won't be so much what the output is 
but maybe the output at the top, the output at the like the high end in terms of making money in comedy mm. might get a little sanitized. Maybe. Mm. I don't know. Dave Chappelle is as big as he's ever been. Mm. Um you know, and and I think Kevin Hart is very funny, but Kevin Hart would be much more like a safe comedian than mm. than Dave Chappelle to use him as an example. You could see long term more of a strain of Kevin Hart's than Dave Chappelle's at the top of the pinnacle, mm. but I don't think it will affect what actually people are producing because, like we were saying before, the need to laugh is pretty static. It only maybe goes up. It doesn't really go down. Mm. And the innate desire of people to make others laugh is pretty static as well. Mm. So I think people are going to keep producing whatever the fuck they want to and whatever the mm. local market where they're at permits them to do. Mm. But it could affect monetization, maybe, mm. long-term. Mm. Maybe. So we'll see if it sticks. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in some way, um, uh, the effect of all this and the effect of everybody having a voice and everybody feeling, because everybody now has a voice, then we all feel entitled that our voice is as important as anybody else's. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that thought, but it it's still, um, you know, if I say something that offends you, it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. It just means that this is how you feel. Sure. And, and I... I I, I don't know. I have I have a feeling that yeah that that this may be as you're saying we're gonna kind of have a whitewash in a way that we're gonna have like a sanitized top layer where you know where all the money is because that's that appeals to everybody. It doesn't in, in insult anyone. Doesn't mm-hmm. you know push any buttons or anything. And then you will have more lo- like a layer somewhere else, or you will have some segments or boxes somewhere else that where you know some other stuff is going on or or different kind and i'm a little bit scared of this because i think that it's healthy i've often taken this example because i come from a super small country of iceland mm-hmm. we had four newspapers so i read the common newspaper i read the the capitalist newspaper i read the center newspaper i read all these newspapers because this was the only stuff to read right so and to get to the comics in the back you kind of had to flip through all the pages so you would see the same topic from from maybe three four different angles you know mm-hmm. whether it was you know fishing or agriculture or social security or whatever so you kind of brushed to everything mm-hmm. and it means that you say okay there is there is a different side i have this opinion but i also need to accept and understand that there is someone else that has sure. a different opinion and i feel now we're kind of the the this is we're surrounding ourselves with people that have this. We're in a bubble, you know. We we, we mm. surround ourselves with people that have the same opinions, follow the same things as we do, and we find everything else very alien somehow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, what you described with this with with comedy, it's kind of that because then you kind of you filter out whatever could, um, what you say, stimulate anyone, every anyone in the wrong way, and then you end up with a. Right, right. And I think it comes to be like a a standard that's set for a comedian that would be different than other things you would consume or for comedy than other things Mm -hmm. you would consume. Like, so you were saying before, like, yeah, just because you offend someone doesn't mean you're wrong. But even if someone is wrong, it doesn't mean they're wrong all the time about Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Even if someone said something genuinely off color that was shitty, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that that's who they're about as a comedian Mm -hmm. nor as a person. But it gets to be this point, like, you know, like, if I was to say uh, an off-color joke about trans people, Mm. you know, I would maybe lose support about 
from everybody on the yeah. left, even though yeah. you know, like everything I said about immigration or everything else was right on yeah, target. Yeah, you did ninety nine percent right and one percent wrong, and you're cancelled. Yeah, in a way, or you know, that's that's sort of the idea. And mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's being overblown, and that that phenomenon that does exist is being you know mm -hmm. utilized then by the right, and and of course it's being whatever weaponized and overused. But it's built on the fragment of truth that we are you know maybe holding people to. Not too high of a standard, but a different standard. You know, like you go to a restaurant and you order something and you don't like it. Mm. You might still go to the restaurant and just order something else another mm. time. Yeah, it's you know, a like, million times. Yeah, like, you know, like, yeah. so like, you know, try the same comedian another mm. time, mm. you know, or, you know, like, because like, I, again, I, I don't put myself in too risky of a situation like this, but I, I did. I remember I did some crowd work once and there was a dude from a Middle Eastern country and I did something that I felt was shitty. I can't mm. remember. It wasn't like outright racist or something, but there was something I did that was like, oh no, 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 no. Like just thinking about like any like Arab friends of mine, like, nope, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be cool with that. Mm. So I went up to the guy during a smoke breaker after the show to say, like, yo, sorry about that. That was really stupid. And he was, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I mean, yeah, that was kind of fucking stupid, but you were really funny. Mm. You know, and like that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm. You know, like, yeah, that was a stupid fucking thing you said. The rest of what you said was fine. Was fine yeah. So you seem like a mostly fine pe person, you know, <laughs> which is about yeah. all we can all hope for, you know? Uh, worst show ever. And why was it bad? Uh... Okay. Yeah. All right. So there's two because the worst I've ever done was like the second time I ever did comedy. Mm. And there's not much of a story to it. It was just I bombed, you know, like or that was a third time. Mm. And it was one of those times where I was like, okay, do I like this enough that, you know, I can accept that this might happen sometimes? Mm. And that was the moment I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep going. But the worst show I've had as an organizer, because I also, you know, co-run uh, a comedy show, or I have on mm. Friday nights, uh, at London Underground here in uh, here in Prague with my buddy Jose Carlos Moreno. Mm. Um, but that time, we had two Irish comedians that had been visiting um, from Dublin, and they had stayed up all night the night before and we had them as headliners and stuff. It was like making a big deal of it. They had been up all night the night before drinking and also had blamed me for that because the promoter who had brought them to Prague asked me to look after them. Mm. And I told them the name of a hostel, but I gave them the wrong name. Uh, and they went to a different hotel and uh, a hotel by that name and couldn't get a room there because it was too expensive. So the only thing they could have done at that time, the only option they had mm -hmm. was to drink in the park all night. Yeah. So Ob they got, a, like, you know, there was, there is no internet in Prague yeah. as everyone knows, uh, nor are there any other hostels. There's only one. Mm. Um, so like, they just basically like were incoherently drunk, but managed to like insult both me and Jose, uh, mm -hmm. on stage. <laughs> And then uh, and then dashed out on their bill uh -huh. as well. So uh, yeah, fuck the luck of the Irish. I wish I could remember Connor's last name, but uh, if you got a long-haired guy named Connor from Dublin who's a comedian, he's kind of a scumbag. Uh -huh. Um, so I mean, we're kind of coming to an end. I mean, you, you if I look at what what you've been telling me and also what I knew about you before, it's kind of like uh, it seems that you, um, in some way have a need to assist because I know you're, you know, you, you like this teaching you've mm -hmm. been doing also 
uh, kids with special needs. Um, mm-hmm. and you're doing the Gaelic Irish football. Tell yep. me what it's called. Prague Hibernians Gaelic football. Yeah. Well, we also have hurling as well, another Irish sport. So what's hurling? Hurling is with a stick. So it's uh, the fastest game on grass. It's played with a stick, a pretty hard ball that spends uh-huh. most of its time in the air. You score either in a goal, past a goalie, or over the uprights. Okay. Gaelic football works the same way. It's sort okay. of like Gaelic football is sort of like soccer and rugby mixed together. Okay. And it's older than both of those sports. So we like to say the Brits stole one of our sports and made two out of it. The Scots did it, I think, yeah. right? Maybe. I think it went to Scotland, then to England. That, and then some sense. people say that it came from China, actually, but I don't know. Mm. Anyway, so, I mean, but it, it, it kind of looks like you you have this Mother Teresa syndrome with a eh, bad mouth. I don't know about that. Well, yeah, the bad mouth part for sure. Mm. But um, I don't know. It's a lot of my family has worked in education. Mm. Um And it's a sort of a public sector tradition sort of in the family to a degree. That's kind of how my family made their way in the world mm. was my you know, grandfather getting a bus driver job, union job, healthcare job. Um, so a lot of teachers, school nurses, stuff mm. like that in my family. So that sort of established it. But then on an individual level, I kind of, I do get a lot of, I define myself a lot about how Not what others think about me, but what I'm doing for other people. Mm. That so, It gives you pleasure. Yeah, it does. Mm. And it gives me meaning. And mm. that is, to a certain degree, what people think of you. Mm. Um, but I'm okay with that because, you know, if you do something nice for somebody, they usually think nice things about you. Mm. So I just try to be, as a teacher, I try to be one of those teachers that I remember their name, you know, mm. 20-some-odd years later. Mm. I try to be a good friend. I try to be a good co-worker. I try to be a good husband. Be Like, I just, mm. it gives me self-worth and a, and a sense of myself to do for others more than for myself to a degree to a mm-hmm. degree i don't want to sound like mother Teresa or like I'm no no but, but guy, you, but you like, get what i'm saying i mean it's it kind of like uh yeah you you don't mind helping others yeah no i don't don't but mind you it. don't mind getting into the fight either if needed no no mm-hmm. i'm not a goody two shoes either mm-hmm. you know i'm I'm a dude from New Jersey, you know, you got to get your get your hands dirty a time or two. Mm. But that's what it is. Like at the end of the day, I think I'm just a guy from New Jersey because what people from New Jersey do is they'll get in a few scraps, they'll say fuck a few times, and then they'll help everybody out and give the shirt off their back to somebody who needs it. Mm. Um what where can people follow you? I mean, I know I've, there's one thing actually that I, I that I know that you're working on something or you kind of been incorporating into your comedy that's kind of like a Musical comedy, in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah. And that that's that's super sounded super interesting. Yeah, so um yeah, so I'm I'm doing a lot of trying to bring my rapping and comedy together. So I've been doing a lot of uh histor and also I'm a history teacher, so I'm doing historical hip hop comedy songs. Mm-hmm. So like rapping from the perspective of either a person at a certain time period, like I don't know, Genghis Khan or Louis the Sixteenth, or like from a group of people at a certain time period, like Serbs before World War One, like gangster mm-hmm. rap, you know, to show how they were feeling before Gavrilo Princip uh pulled the trigger. But then I'm also doing like little jokes about different genres of music so doing kind of comedy songs to make fun of certain genres of music um actually I'll, I'll do a quick verse of an irish yeah uh, the irish bring it i won't be rapping but uh this is like to make fun of uh irish music mm-hmm. as a genre mm-hmm. it's basically irish music uh 
is a lot of the songs have really like kind of gangster ass lyrics. Like they'll mm. be about like shooting at soldiers or something like that. But like the song sounds so like that you don't really notice what it's about. So generally in Irish music, uh, every Irish song is about one or more of these things. Uh, immigrating, mm. uh, love like everybody, everywhere else. Uh, how beautiful the landscape of Ireland is, and fighting the British people. And that's mm -hmm. basically it. Mm. So I'll just uh, say a quick verse and a, and a chorus here of just a song that represents all Irish music. Mm. All right. As I gazed out from the hillside to the rolling Celtic sea, amongst the emerald valleys beside the river Lee, I came upon a fine young lass, and she did say to me, There's a British soldier over there, so I shot him in the knee. Hey, a feedy loady lady, oh, a feedy loady lee. A feedy loady lady, oh, I shot him in the knee. Hey! And that's basically Irish music in a nutshell. Yeah, it sounds great. She it was a, a helpful girl that he met. He, he she pointed out the soldier so he could shoot him. Yeah, standard day, you know, in about yeah. 1915 Ireland. You know, you see a good-looking girl. She tells you where the British are. And what are you gonna do with it? Are you gonna make this part of your comedy, or are you gonna make video? I mean, what, what, how, yeah, what's gonna be I, the medium? I, I, it's been a part of my comedy, probably most of my comedy during the little interim we had last summer where we were open again. Mm. Uh, my goal is to get it to be a full hour and a half show. I've been kind of mixing it in with uh, with regular comedy so to speak mm. uh, i'm building up like videos and slideshows to go behind it that go along with each okay. song uh, so that's the idea is by 2022 to have it as a theatrical kind of production well, that's cool sounds good and yeah so back to it so where where can people know more about you what, yeah. what, what to follow so it's uh soundcloud irish cream nj or as a follow, follow the link uh that almara put mm. uh as a comedian i'm just sean reardon comedian that's r-e-a-r-d-o-n uh on facebook uh, i've got some youtube videos up as well but you get a pretty good idea for, of what i'm about from the from the facebook pages for sure instagram Instagram is yeah I have one but but no you're not really pushing yeah, that one just man just managing to exist on one platform is a uh, an accomplishment enough for mm. for me for right now I'm hoping to get Insta active but and 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 the comedy clubs I mean there what what are I mean where because I know you've done some online stuff sure. now during the lockdowns and stuff and where can people check that out yeah it's still through. and you put that on your Facebook page. I yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's still through Comedy Prague, and I'm I'm doing a show in a in a. <laughs> you won't hear this because I'm doing it in a couple of a uh, couple of minutes or in an hour or so. Mm. Um, but through Comedy Prague, still most of the shows that are or any of the shows that are organized by comedians in Prague, even online, mm. just Comedy Prague on Facebook. All the shows are listed out. Mm. We're super responsive as well with any questions, so it's really easy. And it's cool, guys. I know. I mean, like a lot of a lot of my listeners are not here in the Czech Republic. Um, I have listeners in Iceland, in Scandinavia, US, UK, mm -hmm. even Australia and Indonesia. And shout out to my 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 guys in in Jordan that are listening. Yay! yay. But I'm uh, on. <laughs> but uh, these things are online now, and they're you know like on Friday nights and stuff like that. So, so mm -hmm. you know, you guys, you can check out um, international comedy in Prague. Yeah, uh, it's super cheap, it. usually super cheap entrance and uh, good stuff going on. I've, I've checked into some of those shows. So, uh, yeah, check that out, guys. And um, mm -hmm. We got talent in this city. Yeah, we do. Uh, because, you know, that's the beauty about Prague. It draws in so many different kind of characters, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's such a mixed bag. It's amazing, actually. For sure, man. Um, 
Anyway, guys, uh, follow the show on Facebook, uh, The Bunker, How the Hell Did We End Up Here? That's the Facebook page. Uh, there is an Instagram page, Bunker Prague. My personal Instagram, Midlife Crisis Warrior, and then on Twitter, Midlife Crisis Warrior. And uh, yeah, follow the show, share it, review it, uh, tell me about funny people that I should have on. And uh, thanks to the sponsors, Alfred.cz, where you find your dream jobs, and uh, the Old Bar Prague, where you find your dream food. Uh, Sean, tell me your last name. Reardon. How are you going to celebrate St. Patrick's? I am going to continue to put as much beer into myself as I reasonably can and do an online comedy show for a bunch of people from Ireland and try to make them laugh as an Irish-American, which is not a guarantee. Sounds good. I'm going to take my dog, go home and eat, and uh, yeah, enjoy your evening. You too, brother. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye-bye. The shine of your man's a result of grind, brother, seeking your fine. You miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take. Tell yourself that you got a heart that don't break. Cause in the end, you're haunted more by the choices you don't make. Represent the real in yourself, don't front and don't fake. Don't let nobody tell you that your goal's unrealistic. Again, to bugging out when you'll be reading some statistics. Living like this quick, we all been batted and realized the only close friends and getting mad and teeth. Been chatted, give, been tatted. Situations get thick. Trying to climb up a thin ladder in these. These days, only so many can fit. So I don't mind bending down to pick up a penny a bit. A lot of people feel the same, but they ain't too proud. So if they ever say it, then it ain't too loud. But remember that you're blessed and you can rise above the mess, fam. And never let anybody go treat you like you less than. Don't ever be afraid to speak your mind. The shine of come as a result of grind, baby, seeking your fine. Don't ever be afraid to speak your mind. The shine of come as a result of grind, brother, seeking your fine. Don't ever be afraid to speak your mind. The shine of come as a result of grind. Baby seeking your fine. Don't ever be afraid to speak your mind. The shine of come as a result of grind, brother seeking your fine.